Well, as we jump in this morning, I'm wondering if you've ever heard of the evangelism strategy known as the Way of the Master with Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. Essentially, it's a way to interact with everyday people on the street based on the Ten Commandments. For example, you walk up to a person in your community or in any other scenario and you start up a conversation. And then you start asking very simple questions. Like, have you ever told a lie? If yes, what does that make you? Makes you a liar. Have you ever stole anything? If yes, what does that make you? Makes you a thief. Have you ever looked at a man or woman with lust in your heart? If yes, what does that make you? According to Matthew 5, it makes you an adulterer. Then you say, now, knowing that God is a just judge, which he is, how could he ever let a lying thief and adulterer into heaven? And of course, they agree with that logic, which puts you in a glorious place to point these people to the salvation that is only available in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is an absolutely wonderful way to share the gospel because it's the convicting power of the law that leads a person to Christ, Galatians 3.24. But that's not the only way to lead a person to Christ, that they would be faithful followers of Jesus who are bold with the gospel, willing to reach out to those who are lost so that they too might experience salvation. So not the convicting power of the law, but instead the convicting power of grace. So undeserved kindness receiving a blessing when you deserve a curse, the gift of life when you really deserve death. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see the convicting power of grace, specifically at work in the Apostle Peter's life. And my hope and prayer is that the Lord might use his experience to spur us on to be, number one, amazed by grace, Number two, to be faithful followers of Christ. And then number three, to be zealous evangelists who joyfully share the good news of the gospel with others, our friends, our family, and our neighbors. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I'd also encourage you to grab my outline uh, and have it right in your Bible with, uh, with the words that we're going to be looking at. My background's chemical engineering, so I like work right off of this outline, so you'll follow along, you'll see exactly where we are. But that's kind of our roadmap for where we're going this morning. If you're in Luke chapter 5, follow along as I read verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, out of the boats, and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, 
they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came, and they filled both the boats, so that when they began to sink, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now what is fascinating about this scene as we begin is that the disciples are not even in the crowd, right? I mean, they're not even listening to what Jesus is saying, but they're on the outskirts. So Jesus brings this crowd over to the shore where there's these two boats, which the fishermen had just gotten out of and were washing their nets, which, by the way, is very typical. They're always checking their equipment, fixing and mending the nets. When verse 3 tells us, Jesus suddenly gets into one of the boats, which was obviously Simon Peter's, and he asked to be pushed out a little way from the land. Now again, Simon Peter is on the outside of the crowd, but I think he would have liked this arrangement very much. Now why do I say that? Well, because the roles are very clear at this point in the story, aren't they, right? Peter is the fisherman, and Jesus is the teacher. So Peter drives the boat, that's what fishermen do, And Jesus does the teaching. That's what teachers do. So all is well. And the world is as it should be. Now I remember being on a missions trip to Lakeside Christian Camp, which is in western Massachusetts. We were on a missions trip in order to install a cathedral ceiling one summer in their chapel. When I had this conversation with one of my guys, right? So I recruited one of these guys, an adult man, about 45 years old, who happened to be the construction manager at IBM. He ran million-dollar projects. In fact, I purposely brought him, in particular, on this trip in order to run the cathedral ceiling construction project. That's why he was there. So one day, I was on the job site. And I started sharing my thoughts and how this ceiling should be constructed. You know, ways in which I thought he could improve on the process. So things that could be changed, modifications that could be put in place. When my friend, patiently, yet firmly said to me, Look, friend, I'm the builder. You're the preacher. I will take care of the building, you take care of the preaching. If we can just keep that fact straight, he said to me, all will be well, (laughs) and the world will be as it should be. So at the beginning of Luke chapter 5, everything is fine. Peter's the fisherman, and Jesus is the teacher. 
So Peter handles the boat and Jesus handles the preaching. So everything's fine just as it should be until Jesus starts meddling with the fishing. And he says to a seasoned fisherman, a man with years of experience, verse 4, he says, let down your nets for a catch. Now notice how he doesn't say, let down your nets for a try. This isn't a suggestion, is it? This is a promise. Let down your nets for a catch. Now let me just tell you one other quick story. Because I have this friend, Fran Abrahamovich. Now you know that this is a true story with a name like that, right? <laughs> so this is my friend, Fran Abrahamovich who's been fishing up in Vermont on Lake Champlain his entire life. So Fran, I was working at IBM at the time, took me out ice fishing, ice fishing, have that in your mind, one Saturday morning. And after we set up our entire fleet of tip-ups, he pulls out his grill. I've never gone ice fishing like this, right? He brings a trailer with a four-wheeler to set up the tip-ups. After we set up the tip-ups, which I've never seen operate like that, we set up tip-ups like 16 per person, 64 tip-ups, done. He pulls out the grill, and he says it's time for breakfast. I looked at him, and I'm like, okay. I mean, it's still dark out. It's like 5 in the morning, and he makes us egg sandwiches. Then he looks at his watch, and he says, you better wrap up. He says, it's going to start in about five minutes. I'm like, Fran, what are you talking about? He said, the fish are going to start biting in five minutes. You need to finish your sandwich. And then all of a sudden, the tip-ups start flying. We caught fish nonstop for 30 minutes. Salmon, like big salmon. Like I've, I'm used to going ice fishing and catching nothing, right? You just sit out there. So 30 minutes nonstop running tip up to tip up, catching salmon. And then just as soon as it started, it stopped. And Fran says, let's pack up. I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, it's over. Days like this, overcast and cold, this temperature, they hit for 30 minutes, and then it's done. Most unbelievable thing I've ever experienced. But that's a master fisherman. You hear what I'm saying? Make the connection, because Peter's been fishing this lake his entire life. So he is a master fisherman, which means he knows the Sea of Galilee like the back of his hand. He knows the depths, the currents, where the fish are, where the fish are not. And he knows when you catch them. And he knows when you don't catch them. But here's Jesus saying to him, let down your nets for a catch. And yet, this is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the agent of creation, the word that went forth in the beginning to create this lake and bring it into being. The one who formed these fish, their inward parts, knit them together. Who is the Lord of every wind and every wave and every tide and controls where schools of fish live and move and have their being. In fact, he could have said to the fish, jump into the boat. 
And they would have done it immediately without question. That Lord Jesus says to Peter, let down your nets for a catch. Therefore, Peter, in my estimation, responds in ignorance and arrogance. Look at verse 5. He says, Master, which sounds so submissive, doesn't it? Master, we toiled all night. All night! And we could nothing. There's no doubt in my mind that there's attitude here in Peter's voice. How do I know that? Well, for starters, night was considered the best time for fishing. You didn't fish during the day. You fished at night. And this master fisherman, this regional expert, if you will, had been fishing all night. And they caught nothing. So throwing their nets back into the water after they had just cleaned them was a total waste of time. In his mind, it was a massive exercise in futility. And to make things worse, the suggestion, notice, is coming from a carpenter. What in the world does a carpenter know about fishing anyways? And yet Peter's respectful, isn't he? Again, verse 5. But master, at your word, I will let down the nets. But it's obvious, isn't it? Peter's not convinced that Jesus has a good plan here. He's willing, but he's not convinced. He obeys, but it's a half-hearted obedience. And can't you relate? I mean, isn't this our tendency? To doubt the wisdom, the sovereignty, and the miracle-working power of God? I mean, he tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he promises all these things will be added to you. Food and clothing and shelter. He promises everything that you need. And yet we're convinced we have to take care of ourselves. We have to do it if it's going to happen. And we're anxious, aren't we, all the time as to whether or not we'll be okay. And to that we're told, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But do we pray? Maybe a half-hearted, half-believing prayer. Hey, Lord, if you're willing, could you help me out? But then rather than trusting, what do we do? We go right back to working and worrying. Don't you see? We're just as prone to half-hearted obedience. Or how about this one? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nation. Yeah, I'm not sure they're going to listen to me. They don't look like the responsive type. 
Speak the truth in love. Yeah, I don't think that's going to go over so well. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Yeah, I know. But that just seems so extreme. Too radical for me. Do you hear what I'm saying? So often we live our lives just like Peter. In ignorance and arrogance and half-hearted obedience. Our view is that if we've given it our best try and nothing's happened, then there's nothing that can be done. Because we tried. And if it didn't happen, then it can't happen. Because we tried our effort for our own glory. It's like we're singing that little song, Steve, Steve, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. And yet all the while, is it not true that our God reigns? That God is a signs and wonders working God. Our God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. He turned the Nile to blood. He split the Red Sea. He caused bread to fall from heaven, water to flow from a rock all to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and then take them home to the promised land. Our God is a signs and wonder working God. Is he not? In fact, if you read Luke, it's fantastic. Right, right here, right now, Luke chapter 4, he's teaching with authority. He's healing the sick and he's casting out demons. And yet Peter's determined, if they've done all they can, we toiled all night. And nothing's happened, then nothing can be done. That's ignorance and arrogance. And yet, if you understand that context, in half-hearted obedience, he says, half-hearted obedience, he says, I will do as you say. Parenthetically, doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but he says, I will let down the nets. And it's right there that the Lord Jesus does exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that Peter could have ever asked for or imagined. And isn't that how God works? I mean, this is the catch of a lifetime. So great that the nets begin to break. In fact, two boats are needed. Bring in the second boat. We have so much fish caught during the day, we need a second boat. And the text says that both boats are filled up. Both boats are overflowing. And both boats begin to sink. How many fish is that? So Peter's half-hearted obedience is not met with a half-hearted response. Instead, Jesus in his grace and his mercy pours out abundant kindness. And just think about that. This is so helpful, right? To just step back and think about that other ways that this could have unfolded, right? Jesus could have brought in 
one fish, right? He could have done that. He could have brought in one fish just to show Peter that he was wrong. You said they'd be none. Peter, look, there's one. He could have done that. He could have also brought in a good catch just to show Peter that he controls the sea and everything in it, which would have been incredibly impressive. But he doesn't just bring in one fish, and he doesn't just bring in a good catch. Instead, he brings in two boatloads of fish, pressed down, filled up, and overflowing, above and beyond what Peter could have ever hoped for or imagined. Do you see? Jesus didn't treat Peter as his sins deserved. So despite his ignorance, his arrogance, and his half-hearted obedience, Jesus pours out abundant kindness, grace upon grace, because that's who Jesus is, and that's what God does, offering abundant, amazing grace in response to our sinfulness. Do you hear what I'm saying? That is the good news of the gospel, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet there's more. So moving from point one to point two, sinking boats to saving men. Because when Peter sees what happens, he falls to his knees. Look at verse eight. Verse eight, he cries out and he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. What exactly is that? It's a confession of sin. But why? Well, first of all, notice the change in how Peter addresses Jesus. He started out calling him master, but now he calls him Lord, which is the same word used to address the God of Israel. Verse 9 makes it absolutely clear that his confession is in direct response to what he just saw. For he and all who were with him were astonished. What were they astonished at? They were astonished at the catch of fish that they had just taken. So Peter's not wondering here how a carpenter knows where the fish are as if he just got lucky. Absolutely not. He's been fishing the Sea of Galilee his entire life and he's never seen anything like this. So he knows a miracle has just happened. And only God performs miracles, signs, and wonders. So that means he's standing on holy ground. He's standing in the presence of God himself. So the truth is, he's got good reason to be afraid, doesn't he? Sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. I mean, just think about the high priests in the Old Testament. I mean, do you know that they were only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled once a year, right? That was on the Day of Atonement. Only once a year could the great high priest go into God's presence. And do you remember how that worked? There's a whole ritual that has to take place, right? Including the fact that the high priest had to wear very special clothes, right? And those clothes included bells on his shoes, and a rope around his waist. Why was that? Well, because sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. So even when they're making an offering for people's sins, right, they would walk in and you'd hear ching, 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 ching as he's moving around and he's making offerings. And if the bell stopped ringing, it meant that the priest stopped moving. 
and he was dead. So the rope was there to pull him out because sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. Therefore, sinful men in their right minds are terrified in awe to be in God's presence. And Peter here demonstrates that he's in his right mind because he knows that he's sinful and he knows he's in the presence of God himself. And it causes him to fall on his knees and plead with Jesus. What does he plead? He pleads, depart from me. But now look at how Jesus responds. Because Jesus doesn't just move in and agree with Peter. Yeah, you're right. Peter, you are sinful. He doesn't do that. He doesn't condemn him to judgment for all eternity, although that certainly would have been a just and righteous thing for him to do. Totally appropriate. Jesus doesn't just listen to Peter and abandon him, right? He doesn't agree with him. You're right, you are a sinful man, and I will depart. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He doesn't run away from Peter. Instead, he says, look at verse 10. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Do not be afraid? You need to understand that's an incredible response. Not only preserving Peter's life and not casting him into eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, but then offering him what? Comfort in the midst of fear. Do not be afraid. That's kindness instead of judgment. That's mercy instead of justice. I want you to be absolutely clear. This is amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Peter's crystal clear. I'm the wretch. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's amazing grace that saves men. And by the way, how is that even possible? I mean, what what warrant does Jesus have to say something like that to Peter? Do not be afraid already in Luke chapter 5. This is early in the gospel, right? This is Luke 5. How does he have the authority to do that? How how does that work itself out? Well, only by this, that he came on a mission to die for people's sins. So already in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has missile lock on the cross of Calvary, which won't happen for another three years. Recorded in Luke chapter 23, where he will pay for every single one of Peter's sins, right? So every act of ignorance, every attitude of arrogance, every deed of disobedience. Jesus already knows. He will pay it all, which is exactly what we celebrate on Good Friday, right? That's why Easter is so absolutely wonderful, the reality of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross and those glorious words that he declared, it is finished. God's wrath fully satisfied so that Jesus can stand here and extend amazing grace to Peter. But not only the grace to bring comfort instead of judgment, but grace to decide that now of all times is the best time to call Peter into the ministry. 
I mean, you have to stand back in awe and wonder what Jesus is doing because this entire event is a living parable. I mean, taking a master fisherman out into the deep water of the Sea of Galilee just to command him to let down his nets for a catch, all to highlight Peter's ignorance, arrogance, and half-hearted obedience, which then in turn highlights Jesus' amazing grace, blessing him with physical fish beyond all that he could ever think or imagine, which again highlights Peter's sinfulness before a holy God. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus' amazing grace to respond and say, Do not be afraid. That's a good day's work. But then on top of all of that, employing him to share this message with people all over the world by connecting all the dots, tying them all together. Jesus saying to Peter, verse 10, from now on, you will be catching men. Highlighting the fact that Jesus is the one who will not only abundantly bless physically, which he just did, but spiritually, beyond all that Peter could ever hope for or imagine. Let me put it this way. How many fish do you think were in the boat that day? If you had to guess. How about 3,000? Why would I say that? Because that's how many people responded to Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. After preaching on the reality of sin, ignorance, arrogance, half-hearted obedience, which puts all of us in desperate need of a Savior. Acts 2.37 tells us the people were pierced to the heart and they asked Peter, what shall we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day we're told 3,000 souls were added to their number who were devoting themselves to what? to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What exactly is that? That's the local church. And verse 47 says, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Peter will absolutely be a fisher of men and the Lord will abundantly bless. And yet... The glory of this, it still takes faith to follow Jesus. And that faith, true faith in Christ, looks like something, doesn't it? Jesus says it this way, Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Actively following the Lord Jesus. Why? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for all eternity. Now look again at Luke chapter 5, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Did they leave some things? Nope. They left everything. 
They left absolutely everything. Do you, you just pause. They weighed and they measured. And they followed him. Put that in context. You're like, well, they didn't leave very much. Really? Did you hear the story? Like, think about that for a second. They had never seen a catch like that in their entire lives. They got two boats right now full of fish, pressed down, filled up, and overflowing to such an extent that both of the boats are sinking. Translation, business has never been better, right? They've never experienced such financial windfall. Don't make these people poor. Don't make these people foolish. They weighed and they measured. Life's never been better. Not worthy to be compared. And they followed Jesus. Did they weigh and measure for a long period of time? Does Jesus sit back down in the boat? Take your time. Think about this. You know, hey, don't rush. 2.5 milliseconds. Are you kidding me? And they followed Jesus. They decided the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things, not worthy to be compared with Jesus. So essentially, Peter, like the Apostle Paul, said, I count everything as loss. Absolutely everything is lost in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, my Savior, my everything. They counted the cost, they weighed and measured, and they followed Jesus. And really, that's my prayer for every single one of us this morning. Because what Jesus did for Peter is exactly what Jesus offers to every single one of us. And we are called and commanded to respond, which is why I titled our application, point three, Savoring Christ. Sinking boats, saving men. Number three, savoring Christ. So first and foremost, my hope and prayer is that you're amazed by grace. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates. He demonstrates present tense. So right here, right now, he demonstrates in the present time his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the good news of the gospel is only rightly understood in light of the bad news of our sin. You cannot understand the good news of grace unless you understand the bad news of sin. You skip this, you don't understand that. Sin and judgment is what makes grace so glorious. And we are all sinners, just like Peter, who deserve God's judgment. Romans 3 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. We have become worthless because there is none who does good. Not even one. We are all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God in his infinite love and his mercy, in his amazing grace, 
sent Jesus to take our sins upon himself and nail them to the tree. So I pray that if you haven't already taken Jesus up on his offer and experienced for yourself his amazing grace, that you would do that right now. I'll give you 2.3 milliseconds to think about it. It should take you that long. It should be so obvious to you. Sin and judgment. Grace, mercy, eternal life. Count the cost. Leave everything and follow Jesus. It should be the most obvious thing you've ever done in your life. Repent, believe, be saved. And if you've done that, then I want to encourage you to daily glory in that reality that he willingly took your sins. Let's just be more direct. Your current ignorance and arrogance and half-hearted obedience. I don't know you. This is the glory of being a guest preacher, right? I could say that, right? But I I just look at my own life. I don't have to look far back to see ignorance and arrogance and half-hearted obedience. I can look to yesterday. Glory in grace. Your sinful thoughts, your wicked words, your wayward actions. He nailed them to the cross, and you bear them no more. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's amazing grace. Daily amazing grace. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And as a result of those two things, being amazed by grace and being a faithful follower of Christ, remember Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and do what? Follow me. Active following of the Lord Jesus. Why? Forever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it for all eternity. So true faith requires you to count the cost. Dear believer, I would say true faith requires you to count the cost on a daily basis. You need to weigh and measure. My recommendation, do this before you get out of bed. Weigh and measure. Who am I living for today? Almost on a daily basis, I quote Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. What is thy only comfort in life and death for you, Steve? my only comfort in life and death, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but have been purchased by the Lord Jesus and have been called and commanded today to follow him. I would encourage you, weigh and measure daily and make the decision wholeheartedly And in our current culture, let me appeal to you, without apology, to follow Jesus. Not perfectly, but increasingly, progressively. And Peter is such a glorious example of that, isn't he? He counted the cost, he weighed and measured, and he decided to leave everything in order to follow Jesus. No turning back. 
And yet look at his life. Stumbling and bumbling all over the place, at times even denying that he knew the Lord Jesus. But in the end, he was a bold witness for the gospel. Acts chapter 2 is no small thing to stand up in the public square and declare the gospel that he saves sinners like you and me. Don't minimize that reality that the work of the Spirit working in Peter caused him to declare the glory of the gospel, even in the midst of the public square. Used mightily by God to be what? What was Peter specifically? He's a fisher of men. So be amazed by grace. Be a faithful follower of Jesus and be a fisher of men. What I so desperately want you to see is that Peter's testimony is every Christian's testimony because God calls every Christian to be a fisher of men. So he calls you to love the people in your life enough, love them enough to share the good news of the gospel with them. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. I mean, maybe it's through acts of kindness that you get to share your testimony. Maybe it's through inviting people to Bible studies or to church. Maybe it's through confessing your own sin to the person in front of you and then sharing with them. So being honest, taking a chance, telling them that you're a sinner saved by grace. I'm a Christian. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Tell them that you are not perfect, that you don't have it all together, that you're a mess just like them. But your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is in the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross for you. That you can be forgiven. That you can be redeemed, restored, and transformed. That you can live a life that is so gloriously different than the world around you. Not by your own effort for your own glory, but by his grace and for his glory. Or maybe it's through street evangelism. Just like Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, the convicting power of the law, using the Ten Commandments to point people to their desperate need for a Savior. Whatever the way, I'm absolutely convinced that if you're daily amazed by grace and you're a faithful follower of Jesus, then the Lord will use you to be a fisher of men. Let me just say before I close that I don't want to hear from a single person that God can't use you. That's ridiculous. I'm not an evangelist. I don't know. I can't do that. Right? That's half-hearted obedience. We talked about that. Right? Do not say that God can't use you. Look at the Gospels. Look at Luke 5. He took an ignorant, arrogant, half-hearted, obedient sinner like Peter and he used him in one sermon to save 3,000 souls. Is that a once and done? Nope. Then he took an unbelievably group of misfit toys called the 12 disciples, right? I mean, those, that's an unbelievable group of misfit toys. That's who that is, right? That's the 12 disciples. And he used them to transform the world. He used a guy like me to go to Windsor, Connecticut to share the gospel. I am telling you, I am nothing impressive. 
Scott would tell you he's nothing impressive. We're just amazed by grace. And we're just trying to be faithful followers of Christ. And we're appealing to you to do the same. Daily, before you get out of bed, amazed by grace, faithfully following Jesus, Lord, use me that others might repent and believe. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, you're so kind. You come to us all individually. You took Peter, this fisherman, out in the boat in order to convict him of his sin, in order to see his Savior, in order to be empowered and sent out to be a fisher of men. Lord, you're at work in every mind and every heart. We pray that you are, that you would cause each of us to be convicted of our sin, to be amazed by grace, to be faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, to count the cost on a daily basis, and to say, no-brainer, I'm with Jesus. And I pray that you would use us in a mighty way. Help us to be fishers of men. Lord, soften hearts that they might respond to the good news of the gospel that they might repent and believe in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would raise up an exceedingly great army because we know that you're worthy of our worship and praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.